If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Ephesians 6. Although we're going to spend time in a lot of passages today, a few passages. This is going to be a different kind of sermon. Uh, We've been preaching through the book of Ephesians, and we'll continue to do that beginning again next week. Uh, We believe in expositional, verse-by-verse Bible preaching. But every once in a while, there's a moment when you do need to stop and look around a little bit. And Pablo preached a wonderful sermon last week on Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 4, about the relationship, the core relationship in the Christian household between a parent and a child, and laid out for us what uh, Paul was advocating for in Ephesians 6. Let me just read that for you to remind you of it. And then I want to tell you where we're going to go today. This is what we heard last week. It's God's holy and inerrant word. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, help us this morning as we think about a very important application of this passage. Give us your grace. Whether we in this room are actively parenting children right now, or we are parents of adult children, or we are single, or we are in the later years of our life, meet us as we reflect upon your word and give us your grace to know how to apply this truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to run a rabbit trail today, and the rabbit trail is the topic of passing on the faith to our children. Maybe I should say the critically important and massively difficult topic of passing on our faith to our children. I'm going to stand in front of you today as an imperfect pastor and an imperfect parent who needs to hear my own preaching. And I hope you'll understand that I'm under the word of God just as much as I hope you are. Uh, If you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or just a spiritual parent or a Sunday school teacher, we're all in this together. We can't do this unless we're all in this together. If you are a student, a teenager, a child in the congregation this morning that's old enough to hear me speaking right now, this is really important for you. It's important for you too. And another thing I want to say before I get going is the book of Ephesians is set up with the indicatives of the gospel first and the imperatives of the gospel second. That means it tells us what's true about what God has done for us first 
And then it tells us what we ought to do in light of that. And so I want to remind us, before I talk about parenting this morning, of what it says in Ephesians 2. It says this, For by grace you, parent, child, whoever you are, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And just to be clear, what the Bible is telling us in Ephesians 2 is that nothing we do saves us. That means whether we are the greatest parent in the world or the worst parent in the world, it is not a factor in our salvation. The factor in our salvation is that Jesus' blood was poured out to cover all of our sins and that we have repented and believed it. That's it. Now, if you're a Christian, there are implications for that in the way that you live your life. Because Christ has done this for me, therefore, how then should I live? to glorify and honor Him. And the remainder of the book of Ephesians is talking to us about how we do that. And this section we've been in has been saying, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we talked about how that works in Christian marriage. We talked last week about the dynamic of that in the home with a parent and a child. We'll talk next week about what that looks like in our vocational life. But the rabbit trail we're running this week is this critical issue that's hinted at in Ephesians 6 when it says, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The problem that I want to talk about this morning is this. The Christian church, Christian people, Christian families, at least in the West, are not passing along our faith very well. Uh, Some statistics. Though the membership of our denomination is stable, one of the few, the average age of a PCA church member now is 55 years old. The average age of a PCA church member is 55 years old. may not be the average in our church, but it's the average. For every 100 people over 18 involved in evangelical churches, only 24 are under the age of 45. Uh, That means, if you look at the statistics, that 76% of the adults in a church are over 45 years old. Of that 24 who are under 45, only about nine attend church more than once a month. And only about three attend church more than twice a month. Far less frequently than those in the older generations. Only about three in ten 
of the children sitting in the pews and in the nursery and in the children's church right now are going to profess faith in Christ in college. And if you think that I'm um, exaggerating that statistic, let me tell you, I am not. I can look around this room and know the conversations I've had with everyone in this room that's a parent and the stories you've told me about your children. And that number is about right. We're not doing this very well. And my uh, point this morning, one of the things I want us to see is that you can't keep doing things the same way and expect things to change. You can't. Some people call that the definition of crazy. We can't do it. Or else we doom ourselves and the faith that we love so much. And I know all of you love it. That's why you got up today and you came. We doom ourselves to a future of less and less and less commitment and involvement. Now before we can begin to discern the needs um, and what needs to be done, we have to ask the question, why this is happening? Why is this happening? Well, there's three main reasons that people give. And they're the reasons I'm sure would fall under the bucket of just about everybody in the congregation today. The first reason is that the reason the decline is happening is the culture's fault. The culture is so secular and so anti-Christian that they're poisoning our children's minds against the faith in the church. And you know what? That's something I hear a lot from pastors, and I hear it a lot from parents. And the reality is it's true. It's undeniable. The vectors in Western culture have grown increasingly hostile to Christianity, and they have put children and families in complex and unhelpful situations that have threatened the practice of their faith. No doubt about it. 100% true. However, hasn't this always been happening? If you come to my church history class after this, you'll find out that the most intense resistance the church ever had was during the first three centuries of its existence, and it was Interestingly, the most radical period of its growth. So I don't know if this excuse really captures the issue. Second issue, second place we put blame is at the church, the church's feet. It's the church's fault. We've done a terrible job of making church relevant and interesting to our children, and they've become bored and distracted, and so they don't want to come, and they're leaving. I hear this most often from parents who blame the church, its leaders, its pastors, its youth leaders for failures in doing a good enough job ministering to their children. And you know what? It's true. Churches, youth ministries, pastors have struggled to find the right balance. Sometimes we're too heady or too doctrinal with our kids and we talk about things they can't understand in ways they can't understand. Or sometimes we're too feely and too cultural. 
Sometimes youth group is too fun, and sometimes it's not fun enough. But I have to ask you, what are youth leaders to do when they get equally corresponding complaints in the same church at the same time about the same activity, that it wasn't fun enough or it wasn't deep enough? They're stuck. The third reason that you often hear, it's not, if it's not the culture's fault or the church's fault, it's the parent's fault. We haven't prioritized our own faith and our own church involvement. And because of that, our children have learned what not to do from us. I often hear this from pastors and youth leaders. And the reality is, it's true. It is true. Many parents have buried their heads in the sand. And they think that their, chi their child is going to be the exception to the rule. While they dilly-dally around with their own church attendance, make little effort to disciple their own children, and attend even less to their own spiritual growth. Now, at the same time, I have to say this. There are parents who have done all these things right, and yet their children aren't walking with the Lord. And there's a lot of parents who've done very few of these things right, and their children are. There's not a one-to-one -one correlation there either. The truth is, honestly, that all of these things are impacting us. It's like a Venn diagram, an overlapping diagram, that each of these factors is having an influence on the other at the same time. And we are, meanwhile, boiling like the frog in the kettle. And we're not seeing what's happening. What I want us to say, see this morning as I explore some biblical texts and think about this is that if the faith is going to be passed along to the next generation, all of us, parents and everyone else, have to be intentional, humble, and sacrificial. Now to do that, it's going to depend on two major things, one of which we can't control, and one of which we can. The first thing I want to talk about is what we can't control. And the reality is we, as parents, church leaders, pastors, youth leaders, whoever, can't control the passing on of the faith to the next generation. What we can't control about it is the when and how and why the Spirit will move to change the soul or circumstances of a person. We can't control that. Uh, the Bible says this in Luke chapter 1, just one of the passages I want to look at briefly this morning. Luke 1, in verses 34 and 35, this is early in the story of Jesus. This is before Jesus has been born. This is the moment when the Holy Spirit falls upon Mary, where the angel speaks to Mary about what's going to happen with the birth of Christ. And it says in Luke 1, 34 and 35, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin, 
And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I'm not going to do a deep exegesis of this passage this morning, but I do want you to see this. Why did this happen in this moment to this person at this place and in this way? The people of God, the people of Israel have been waiting for thousands of years for Messiah. And they'd read their Bibles faithfully and they were praying that it would come upon them and their generation in God's timing and God's wisdom. He withheld the moment until this particular person, Mary, in this particular place, Galilee, at this particular time, what we know now is the very beginning of the first century. In these particular circumstances, a young Jewish woman would be the one who the Holy Spirit would rest upon to bring forth Messiah into the world. My point, friends, is that we cannot convert our children by osmosis. You cannot convert your children by osmosis. You can't convert them by doing everything right. You can't not convert them by doing everything wrong. The Lord has to work in their lives. Some people, as I mentioned a few moments ago, and I've talked to many of you, did most things right. But they don't see their children walking with the Lord. And what I might add to that statement is, and I say this carefully, they don't see their children walking with the Lord yet. Some people did many things wrong, but they see their children walking with the Lord already. If any of us in this room thinks that our children are walking with the Lord because we did all the things right as parents, then we really don't functionally believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe in the doctrine of parenting equals justification. And that's just not the truth. That's not to say that parenting and the things that we do as parents don't matter. They do. It's just to say that doing everything right is not itself going to save a child. What's going to save a child is when the Holy Spirit moves to bring them to faith. You all have been watching the news over the last few weeks, haven't you? And you've heard about the Asbury Revival. And everyone's got an opinion on the Asbury Revival. Um, my advice to you in life, by the way, is instead of reading everyone's opinions on the Asbury Revival, there's this thing called original sources. Go and watch the sermon that was preached by Zach Merkrebs in the Asbury Chapel that day. It's online. It's on YouTube. And all the, all the stuff everybody's saying about everything, just watch the sermon. It's a 24-minute sermon given by an average dude isn't himself even an ordained teaching elder. He just works on the campus. It's 24 minutes. It's awkward. He cracks some really bad jokes. Now, most of us do. Um, he's a little goofy. He gets lost in his notes. He stumbles around. 
He accidentally closes in prayer before he's done. And he went home to his wife after he preached the sermon and he said, I blew it again, honey. What he did, though, was to honestly tell the truth about the Bible and said he was willing to stay late to pray with students. And he did. And out of a chapel of three or 400 students that day, 18 students stayed and they prayed. And they didn't leave basically for two weeks. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people from all over the world kept coming and coming and coming. Multiple college campuses broke out in revival. This isn't people rolling around and barking on the floor like dogs. This is just people worshiping Jesus. Praying for each other, confessing their sins in this young generation. Why now? Because that's what the Lord said. For those of you who have a child, an adult child that's not walking in faith, keep praying for them. Keep staying close with them. Keep speaking the truth and love to them. And wait and see what God might do. I've told you the story before. My grandmother was not converted until she was in her 70s. And I got to baptize her just a couple years before she died. Something like 74 years old. We don't know when the Lord will work. We can't control it. What we can control, though, what we can impact in relation to the passing on the faith to the next generation is how we go about the process of modeling and nurturing faith in the next generation. And this is where I want to talk to us, all of us in the room, but I want to mostly talk to parents because the reality is that parents have an outsized influence. And I'm not talking a few extra percentage points. I'm talking about a radically outsized influence on the faith of their children. Uh, Christian Smith is a Christian sociologist. He did, he's done, he's still in the middle of it. It's been going at least 35 years, is a longitudinal survey of children who grew up in Christian homes and stayed in the faith and asked the question, why? And one of the things he says in his book about this is some readers might be surprised to know that the single most powerful causal influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents. Not their peers, not the media, not their youth leaders or clergy, not their religious school teachers. Those are cultural illusions belied by the sociological facts. He adds a little bit later in the quote, parents set a glass ceiling of religious commitment above which their children rarely rise. Okay? So here's what I want to say to parents. Parents, if you're actively parenting right now, and even if your kids are gone and you're still in those early adult parenting years, the most significant impact you can make is to model an active and living Christian faith in your own life and home. 
Now, I'm not basing that on what Christian Smith said. I'm basing it on what the Bible says because the Bible has been saying the exact same thing Christian Smith has been saying from the very beginning. Where? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Turn there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verse 4. Famous, maybe amongst the most famous passages that the Lord gave to His Old Testament people. And here's what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Christian Smith is just saying what the Bible has been saying from the beginning. If you don't take your faith enormously seriously, your children will not. And I can go into more details here. Again, I don't want to burden you. But who's it speaking to? It's speaking to you, adults. What should you be doing? It's not about what the church is doing. It's not about what the youth leader is or isn't doing. It's what you're doing. Are you doing this not just by coming to church, but by doing it at home? At home. You know, one of the tragedies of the COVID pandemic that we pastors heard over and over again were parents saying, I don't know what to do with my kids. What Christian Smith says is, just do something. They're watching you. They're listening to you. You may not even know it. But all of these kids I've been interviewing for 30 years who told me I didn't, I didn't like my parents for 10 of those years, but I still watched them. Our children are going to test us for weakness. They are keen observers of what really matters to us. They can tell the difference between parents who merely go to church and parents who have a vibrant, all-encompassing faith in the Lord Jesus. Now, Smith gives three things. I want you to hear these things. Three things that he's found are almost always true of the kid who stays active in the faith. Number one, the parents participate in worship and church events weekly or more. They bring their children with them weekly or more. And here's the kicker. They talk about religious matters at home 
during the week, weekly, or more. And here's the iteration he discovered. If none of those things happen, that child has a 1% chance of professing faith when they become a young adult. If all three of those things happen, 82% of them profess faith. Because of Deuteronomy 6. Now we have a vexing set of challenges on our hands. I'm going to talk about one of them today. It's not the only one, but it's the biggest one. And it is the vexing challenge of extracurricular activities and youth sports. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.8, everyone hear me, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now listen to me. I love sports. I played sports all the way through college. I still attempt to play them now and I usually end up in bed after uh, attempting to play sports. Sports and extracurricular activities are not the problem. They're wonderful. Playing soccer, basketball, baseball, dancing, being involved in drama, whatever it is, those are incredible, amazing things every one of us should hope our children would do. The problem is when they hinder or block spiritual and ecclesiastical church engagement. And the biggest problem is when kids see the moments where the conflicts come and it's most often or regularly that sports are chosen instead. It sends a very clear message. I'm going to show you a chart. Uh, I don't want to burn you with lots of charts. Here's the chart on people that play high school sports, people that play college sports, and people that play pro sports. Last year, there were 1.1 million high school football players. There were 71,000 that played in college. That includes every level of college, including junior college, Division three, whatever. Of that number, 255 got drafted. And of that number, to play pro, and of that number, after three or four years, only about 40 or 50 are left playing. And the statistics are the same in every category. So that tells us that 0.01 to 0.02% chance that your kid is going to make it to the top. And yet what we do is we regularly sacrifice the things that really matter. Because here's another statistic I, I can give you on the next screen. High school kids that will go on to depend on their ability to break the press, spin a curveball, or break an offside trap to provide for their family are 0.01%. Next slide. High school kids that will eventually face challenging and complicated ethical, moral, and personal decisions that will require spiritual resources, 100%. 100%. We talk about repeating patterns. If we just keep repeating the patterns we're in, we lose. Something 
has to give. And it's not taking your kids out of sports. It's having the courage to say to the coach and your child, you can play that sport. I'll drive you all over the world to play that sport. But we're going to be in worship with the people of God on Sunday. Because it's absolutely essential to you. And they will kick and scream and whine and complain and tell you they hate you until 20 years later they say, I'm really glad you did that because I'm facing something in my life now that I have to learn to deal with that my coach didn't teach me. God gave us a community of people to do this together. You don't have to do it on your own, parents. We're together. What about the rest of us? Just the last couple thoughts. What can we do? Just going to give you a couple parting thoughts here. Okay. Church leaders are wonderful youth workers and volunteers who are putting in hours and hours and hours of time trying to help children's workers that are doing that for you, preparing for you every week. The most significant impact you can make is to be present in these students' lives and proclaim the truth bathed in love and grace and humility. Church members, people that don't have kids, you're not in the battle of parenting Christians. The most significant impact you can make is to contribute to the spiritual and communal vibrancy of the local church. That means being here so that it's not empty when someone else shows up that really, really needs it more than you. So that you don't treat church like a consumer treats a product. That I go and take advantage when I like it. Young people, teenagers, kids, the most significant thing that you need to understand today is you will not always be a kid or a teenager. And kids, I just want you to listen to me. Think about right now the show that you liked when you were five. Okay? Those of you that are 15 now, what show do you like? Do you like the same show? you like the same books? Same music? Or maybe some of you are being... I see some nodding. I, yeah, I still watch Sesame Street when I'm 15. It's cool, you know. Okay, that's great. But you're probably not going to keep watching Sesame Street. Why? Because you've changed. What Sesame Street teaches you about the ABCs and the one, two, threes is not what you need when you're 15 or 20. You need something thicker. And gradually, as you get older, you'll look for thicker things. The question is, which thick thing are you going to look for? You're going to get older. And all of a sudden, your mom and dad are going to look a lot smarter. And grandma and grandpa, especially smart. Christian students, teenagers, you're in one of the hardest times of life. I get it. The most significant impact that you might be able to make right now if you are a Christian student is to recognize that your involvement in the life of the church and its ministries may be the lifeline for one of your peers. And that if you don't come, 
Because you know what kids ask? Who's going to be there? I don't want to go if nobody else is going to be there. If you come, maybe they'll come. And maybe they'll hear something that they need to hear. I want to just leave you with a couple of thoughts for encouragement. Um, we've been praying for prodigals in our church for a few years now. Becky Gibbons helped get this ministry started. We're not always very consistent, but I know we're still praying for them. There's a bunch of people that get together and pray for their older children. And you want to know the interesting thing is, I've had multiple conversations since we started doing this with the people who have been coming about progress in the life of their child. Maybe who wasn't going to church, but just started going again. Or refused to speak to them, but now is willing to speak to them. Keep praying. Join us in praying. And maybe the day will come where the Holy Spirit moves. I want to leave you with the words of a hymn by William Cooper, who was one of the great hymn writers of the church, who himself struggled so much during his life. But he wrote a wonderful hymn called God Moves in Mysterious Ways. And he said this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. And ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings, yea, in blessings on your head. Right now, a child that you love may feel like a thunderstorm about to kill you. But maybe God is doing something in the life of that child right now to bring enormous blessing. Let's pray that way. Father, we ask this morning as we conclude our time together that you would teach us again to take seriously the call upon our lives to love you with our own heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our children, to love our neighbor, in that way, to stand courage, courageously in the gap when they complain about hard decisions we make as parents, but that we know are good for them. Would you strengthen us, give us greater resolve and commitment, not as a duty, Lord, but as a joy to be a part of your church and your people. And Father, would you teach our children over the years to thrive and find that joy and faith, even as we have, for your glory and their good, or as you reminded us through your servant Paul at the beginning, and as you remind us through Moses who wrote that they may live long in the land and prosper. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.